good to be with you as we continue uh, our study in the book of Acts. I thought I'd frame it this time just by looking backward a little bit. Uh, six centuries before Jesus, Babylonian armies sacked Jerusalem, desecrated her temple, dragged her citizens across the desert in chains, uh, dumped them in refugee camps, and that began something called the exile, the time when God's people were displaced from their home. And it, was, it created an enormous crisis. The, the, the life of faith in Jerusalem revolved, of course, around the temple. Uh, and so now there they were, 700 miles away from home, having to ask, well, what does it look like to be a faithful Jew? How do we do worship now when we can't meet the way that we used to meet? And, you know, in, in a similar way, Christians are asking the same questions in this time of COVID. We are a church in exile. Um, we cannot meet. Even if we do gather again, we can't do it exactly in the way that we used to, to do it. And so we're asking, what does it look like to be a faithful church um, uh, living in exile? Well, Acts 2, 42 to 47 identifies four essential practices of a faithful church in exile. All of them just take place in the believers' homes. Um, and I just want to look at them with you today. Uh, Luke summarizes them in um, the first verse, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And that phrase, devoted themselves, means uh, persisting or persevering. So a church in exile persists in or perseveres or continues to do these four practices. Uh, here's the first one. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. So the apostles faithfully pass on the teachings that they heard from Jesus. The, they guard and protect the tradition of the church. But that's not all. The word apostle means um, sent one or missionary. Apostles are people who are sent on a mission from God. And so Apostolic teaching is teaching applied to mission. One commentator says this, Apostolic doctrine is by definition missionary doctrine, and open and flexible doctrine oriented towards mission. So what he's saying is, is that it's more than just handing down the tradition, as important as that is, it's also applying the tradition, the, the, the ancient faith, to the new situation that, that you're in. And we see an example of this in Acts 10 and 11. God gives a, a Roman centurion, a Gentile, a non-Jew, a dream, says, go talk to this guy named Peter. God gives a guy named Peter a dream, uh, challenging him to rethink his relationship with Gentiles. And at that point, Jews had nothing to do with Gentiles. Eventually, they connect. Peter shares the gospel with him. Uh, they uh, are converted. His whole family is converted. Word gets out up in Jerusalem to the apostles that this has happened, and they're upset with Peter. Peter goes. He shares the supernatural dream. Uh, they reflect on Scripture more, and they realize, actually, this is something God seems pleased with. They say, so then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So their theology doesn't change as much as it expands in response to new ways that God is working. So 
apostolic teaching is uh, is both conservative and and progressive. It's conservative in that it faithfully preserves the tradition. It's progressive in that it seeks ways to apply the ancient tradition to new situations and circumstances. And Luke says that their teaching is accompanied with signs and wonders, Acts 2, verse 43, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Signs and wonders are spirit-given manifestations of the power and presence of God, usually through healings. And Christians do disagree on um, whether signs and wonders were given uh, just in the beginning to mark or authenticate the ministry of the apostles, or whether there's something that God still gives to the church today. But here's what I think every Christian can agree upon, is this vision of what should and can happen when we come together and study the Word. Uh, the Word exposes our sin, it reveals our wounds, we, we confess, we share, we open up, we're vulnerable, and in that environment we pray for each other, we're affirmed, we discover our identity in Christ and our callings, and we're sent out, and there's this sense of word and power of God's presence in, in all of it. Um, so just I just want to ask you, um, are you in a small gathering of believers where uh, you regularly study the Word, wrestle with its applications to modern life, and experience the power of the Spirit? Uh, opening and healing hearts. Um, that's an essential practice of the church in exile, um, even if it has to be done through Zoom. Well, the second essential practice of the church in exile is fellowship. Uh, that Greek word's koinonia, and it means sharing in, sharing in the, the life of God and the Spirit. But that wasn't the only way the word was used in the first century. It also meant partnership. In Luke 5, the Greek says that James and John were business partners. They both owned a boat and had a commercial fishing business, and uh, they were called koinonoi, partners in a common enterprise. And I think this is important. Christian fellowship is more than mere feelings, uh, warm comfort when you're together with people you love. It's, uh, it's shared life in the Spirit, but it's it's around a common enterprise, a common mission. Uh, that's one of the things that made the, the early church so dynamic, is they had a sense of purpose, of mission, of destiny, that Christ had sent them into this world to, to share the gospel. Um, when a, a smaller gathering loses any kind of sense of mission, it, it becomes kind of uh, inward and, and can die. And so one of the things that you might want to ask about the smaller gathering you're a part of is, you know, do, do we have any sense of a shared partnership in a common mission? Well, verses 44 and 45 give a glimpse of what fellowship in the early church looked like. All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. That doesn't mean that they sold everything and put it in a common purse. Uh, the verbs in the verse are in the imperfect, which means an ongoing action. And, and what's happening here is as needs arose, the community would meet those needs with resources. Um, 
First century Palestine was incredibly poor by modern standards. Life was dangerous and short. Uh, many of the new Christians were effectively refugees because they had come from other countries. Uh, so imagine that uh, you're in this little house fellowship and uh, uh, one of your families, uh, the father loses his life in a construction accident. Well, the, the little community you're a part of would raise needs, raise resources to meet that family's needs. And of course, you wouldn't go to the ATM. Um, you'd sell your goat. That was, that was how it worked in, in those days. It's a beautiful picture of kind of caring for each other. So again, are, are you in a smaller gathering uh, where you're studying the Word and sharing life in the Spirit with others who know you so well and you know them so well that when needs come up, you can try to meet them? Well, the third essential practice of, of the church in exile is the breaking of bread uh, or the Lord's Supper. And Jesus told the disciples to regularly gather and do this on his last night with them. Here's how we read it in Luke 22. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So one of the names that the early Christians used for the Lord's Supper was uh, the breaking of bread, or sometimes Eucharist, which means Thanksgiving. Uh, sometimes it appeared to have been part of a larger love feast. So regular participation in the Eucharist was one of the essential practices of, of the early church and of any church in exile. Um, we know this is important. Uh, I would say in the past hundred days, of all the things that I've heard from you about, uh, I really miss this or really need this, a Eucharist is the, what I've heard uh, you ask for the most. And so we are working with the small group leaders to provide resources and liturgies um, for you to share Eucharist in your small groups. And you can talk to your leaders about that. Um, one of our, uh, of our members, um, Kay Crouch, in, in hearing about uh, Eucharist being offered in the small group, um, wrote a note. And uh, I wanted to share it with you. She says, we've spent many years trying harder to live the Christian life. This trying harder way of living proved to be futile and exhausting. Over the last several years, our eyes have been open to the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, as a physical way we can regularly participate in the life of Christ and receive him to be sustained and nourished in the Christian life. We come to the table with empty hands, but with hearts and minds filled with faith and trust and belief that Jesus will meet, nourish, and sustain us with his presence and very life in the mystery of the bread and cup. We are met, nourished, and sustained by the Lord Jesus himself. 
He gave us himself at the cross and continues to give himself in the rhythm of the Eucharist. Life still has the same difficulty, but his nearness and presence are experienced by faith when I take the supper. I look forward to the supper, to taking the supper in our group. Uh, my body, heart, and mind grow weary of walking out life in the kingdom of man. I look forward to the supper and the mystery of engaging his presence in the bread and wine, being nourished by his life, and sustained for the journey until I can come to the table with his body, the church, his people again in a week. Hope this is helpful. David K. Are you part of a smaller gathering where you are regularly sharing the Eucharist? That's an essential practice for a church in exile. Well, the fourth essential practice of the church in exile is prayer. Luke doesn't give a lot of detail here. We're going to see the early church in prayer uh, in the coming chapters of the book of Acts. Uh, we do know they spent a lot of time praying together. Praise and worship seems to have been a part, verse 46 and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. So praying with others is an essential practice of the church in exile. But Luke ends his uh, description of this vibrant church almost as an afterthought. He says, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So these small gatherings of believers centered on the rhythms of study and fellowship and Eucharist and prayer were, were drenched with the presence and power of God, and they drew others towards Jesus. Now, it's interesting, in the earliest days of the church, the believers enjoyed both larger gatherings at the temple and smaller gatherings in homes. But this only lasted a few months when persecution comes, um, Many of the believers, maybe most, are driven out of Jerusalem. And for the next 300 years, the church met only in homes. Um, believers who live in countries without religious freedom still do that today. And the fastest growing church in the world meets in homes uh, clandestinely in Iran. So whatever happens in our world, you know, who knows? Um, another COVID spike or something crazy, we can still be a faithful church in exile by gathering together in homes for study, fellowship, prayer, and Eucharist. Again, I just want to ask you, uh, are you a part of a gathering like the one we see in Acts 2, 42 to 47? Because you need to be, um, whether we meet again next month or next year, one of the things that I, I see as a real opportunity during this season is to strengthen this part of our of our ministry because it's it's so important. For 2,000 years, these smaller gatherings have been the DNA of the church, they're the building block of the church. And, and they're essential to spiritual growth, you know, even if they have to occur in some capacity on Zoom. You know, if you imagine a student applying to a doctoral program at UT in economics, and um, during the interview, the student says to the professor, you know, 
I know you guys have always required coursework and regular meetings with the faculty and writing papers. Tell you what, I don't really need to do that. I will uh, watch some YouTubes. I'll get together and have wine every once in a while with students, and um, you know, I'll read a few things that you know I see on the internet. I mean, you're cool with that, right? Well, the professor would say, no, we have a, a time-honored set of practices that help you become a scholar, and if you don't want to uh, honor those practices and learn them, uh, this is not for you. Uh, and, I, and I think in a similar way, you. You, you can't really become a fruitful Christian, even if you're very sincere, if you sort of check out of the way of Jesus, the, the life of Jesus' disciples, the practices. And those four in community have been the, the core practices from the beginning. Uh, I don't see how you can just exempt yourself out of it because you're sincere. Um and I know we like things loose and free in our church, and you might be thinking, I, I know, but I do get together for dinner once a month with some friends and talk about faith. That's enough. I don't, I don't think it's enough. Um, the early Christians knew that they had a challenging mission. They knew they lived in a challenging culture, and they appears to have met daily to practice these things. So I think it's somewhat foolish to think you can meet once a month and practice one of them um, and, and get by. So if you don't have a small gathering like this, um, let us find one. Robert Hodges is helping this summer. Um, he's just doing an incredible job. Uh, you know, I'll be done teaching out at Cedar Springs at the end of July. They found a Cedar pa senior pastor, uh, but they've uh, given us some funds to let Robert work for a couple months um, part-time for us and with us, and it's just been great. And we are opposed to get everybody into some kind of uh, smaller gathering. So let Robert and I know. We'll work with you on that. I think the, the main point today is, yes, the church can flourish in persecution and plague by leaning into smaller gatherings. Um, it has for 2,000 years. Uh, it will again. It can now. But having said that, I need to also say as strongly as I can, there is immense value in the larger gatherings. And historically, whenever Christians have been free to gather together in larger groups, most of them have chosen to do so. I, 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 just, I just miss our larger gatherings terribly. I miss... I miss looking into your face and serving you Eucharist. I miss praying before and after the service. I miss singing with you. I miss reading these ancient prayers with 150 voices. I miss just what happens when, when you're preaching and you can kind of tell what the Spirit's doing in the, in the room. I miss that so bad uh, that I'm, I'm grieving. Um, I'm grieving deeply. Uh, it's, it's one of the greatest losses of my, of my life. And I find myself turning to Psalm 137, um, the prayer of the first exiles in Babylon, and begins, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows, there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs. And our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us, sing us songs of Zion. 
But how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Maybe you felt that way. You know, we're all trying so hard, but sometimes um, trying to, to pray together on Zoom is just not the same thing. And so we ache. I do. I really, really miss being together. Can we flourish in exile? Mm-hmm. We can. Is it wrong to grieve the loss of the larger gathering? Not at all. I hope you are. When will we meet again? Um, that's the exile's eternal question. Just wanted to give you a quick update on and how we're trying to answer that. We have a wonderful group of folks meeting to think about how and when and where all souls can gather again. And they're going to kind of advise the shepherding team and uh, as, as, as they make the decisions. Jana Morgan is the leader of this team. The team also includes Jill and Matt. David Leach, Andrew Smith, Lisa Nelson, Lisa Murray, Phil Dave, Steve Cottrell, and uh, Dr. Heather Day. And um, they're really doing a lot of good work and they'll be communicating with us along the way. You know, I, I've started a little devotional that I'd, I'd love for you to watch. a five minute little quick devotional will be in the newsletter every week uh, about life in exile. It's it's really been good for me to think about in Scripture that metaphor of exile. Um, exile in Scripture is very painful, of course, but it is such a wonderful opportunity um, to to meet God and to be creative and respond in new ways. And our team is a is a part of that. They they are thinking a lot and working hard on you know this question of gathering again, but they're. They're also thinking about uh, how to be a uh, worshiping community seeking the peace of the city, even while we're in exile. How, how can we meet spiritually if we can't meet physically? How can we serve each other in our community well during this time? So you know these good folks, feel free to give them feedback um, along the way. So until next time, beloved, peace.